How many of you know that I know absolutely nothing about computers? <laughs> I don't have email, I don't have voicemail, I don't have a cell phone, none of that stuff. Smartest guy in the room, they say. However, I did learn one term, boot up. So boot your Bibles up to Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, chapter 18. We're going to continue in our study with what Jesus tells us, teaches us. The context, if you recall, Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were with him. Moses and Elijah appeared. It was a huge moment. Those three disciples see him absolutely changed. They come down off the mountain and they encounter a young boy who is demon-possessed. The disciples who were still down there couldn't do anything about it, so Jesus cast the demon out. Next, Peter goes fishing. He finds a fish, and lo and behold, in the fish's mouth is a coin. He uses the coin to go pay the taxes. Wouldn't it be great if we could pay our taxes that way? <laughs> so lots has been happening. Lots have been going on. In the midst of all this, Jesus has been teaching that he is going to suffer, die, and be resurrected. In fact, in this, in this chapter 17, it's the third time he's rehearsed that with them. And his disciples, they're all gathering back in Capernaum, back, no doubt, to Peter's house, which was Jesus' base of operations up in Galilee. So they're all gathering back. And in their mind, when Jesus says that he's going to be resurrected, in their mind, they're interpreting the kingdom is going to happen. It's going to happen now. So coming back together with that mindset, they're all encouraging one another. No, no, no. You should be the greatest. No, you, you should be the greatest. You're the better servant. You should be the greatest. Is that what they're doing? No. No, what are they doing? They're arguing. And what are they arguing about? Not who's the least. They're arguing about who's what? The greatest. They're trying to establish the pecking order. Because they, they're believing at any moment the kingdom is going to come. Who is going to be right there? So in the context, Jesus teaches them a lesson. He uses that to, as a time for teaching a lesson. And so what does he do? He gathers a little child. He says, send the little child into me. Mark says that he took the child in his arms and held him. And he tells his disciples that unless you change, so he's talking to his disciples, Unless you change and become like one of these little children who believe in me, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So apparently there's a precondition for entering the kingdom of heaven. What's the precondition? You got to change. 
You got to change. You got to repent. You got to change. It's not a simple, I believe in Jesus. It's an, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus and what he's called me to be and to do. I got to change. And now he's going to continue and he's going to press that point home even more about what it means to be changed, what it means to be a true child of God. So look with me, beginning at verse 5 of chapter 18 in Matthew's gospel. He says, and, and. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes who? Welcomes him. But, I love these words, and, but, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So he tells his disciples more about what it means to, in fact, be a true disciple. You've got to change, but there's more to it. Now, Hold those thoughts. Let me ask you this. How would you define the Christian life? How would you define the Christian life? Most of us probably don't even think about it. We just think, well, we, we are, and we, we just kind of live. And, but how do we live? How do we define the Christian life? Live according to the Bible. Okay. Some people could interpret that, Idella, as meaning... I'm going to keep the rules. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. For many, the Christian life is just a, a static religion concerned more with rules, rituals, and traditions. Not unlike the early Jews with Judaism. But I would submit to you, the Christian life is a dynamic, new doing of life. It's a dynamic new doing of life with God and with one another. Think about that. What are the two great commandments? Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Is, is love a static thing or is it a dynamic thing? It's dynamic. So my relationship, I'm, I'm called into brand new relationships with, with God. I'm called into brand new relationships with others who are believers who become my what? My brothers and sisters. The Christian life is loving God and loving my, my brother or sister. 
honoring God and caring for my brothers and sisters. See, that's what the Christian life's all about. That's what it means to live it. How many parents do we have? Oh, a lot of parents. How many of you are deeply concerned for your children and zealous for their welfare? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're hard in a parent around who wouldn't say, yes, I care for my kids. I care for their welfare. I care for their well-being. We want to protect them from every form of harm, don't we? Protect them from every form of danger, don't we? We want and we, we greatly appreciate those who come alongside, who, who help our children. And we don't greatly appreciate those who come along and we do our children harm. Emotionally, personally, physically. God's our Heavenly Father. And on Father's Day, we, that, that takes on special meaning for us. He's our Heavenly Father. And he is greatly concerned how his children are treated. Now, many would read this passage we just read in Matthew 18 and say Jesus is just talking about little children. He's not. He's talking about us as little children, those of us who believe in Jesus. We're God's children. Jesus is our big brother. He is the firstborn, Paul says in Romans 8, firstborn of many brothers. So we're his family. We're God's family. We're his kids. We're the very ones that Jesus is talking about in this passage. The protection and the nurture of his children is of utmost importance to him. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. Your protection your nurture is of utmost importance to him. In fact, he promises to bless those who bless you and to curse those who curse you. It goes way, way back, way, way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 12. Many of you know the passage I'm speaking about. God called a man by the name of Abraham uh, to come forward and he was going to use Abraham to bring into existence a whole brand new people group is known as the Hebrews who become known as the Israelites and ultimately become known as the Jews. And Christians today have been grafted into God's family, the Bible tells us. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we read this. God says, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. That's serious stuff, isn't it? Does God care about his kids? Absolutely. He makes an inviolable promise to Abraham to take care. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your family. I care greatly about these little children, these precious, precious children. Now, with that in mind, look back with me at verse 5 of Matthew 18. Jesus says that if we welcome, if we welcome a little child like this in my name. Now, he's, he's got that little child in his arms. Mark tells us he's got him in his arms. 
So if you welcome a little child like this in my name, you welcome me. He's pointing out the intimate, intimate uh, uh, unity between him and his children. What he's saying is that Jesus and believers are inseparable. Now look back with me quickly at verses 3 and 4 from last week. And he said, I, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those who are willing to become like little children. Now, I know growing up, I could hardly wait to grow up and be sophisticated <laughs> and cool and have it together. I remember when I was a young man, my dad, I, I was involved in a lot of stupid, foolish stuff. My dad said to me one day, he says, why don't you, don't you act like a man? I thought, whoa. So I thought, well, all right. I looked around, see what men act like. I too became one of the actors. <laughs> but we, we feel like we have to grow up and mature and be this and that and the other thing. And Jesus says just the opposite. Unless you become like what? Little children. Are little children naive? Are they innocent? Yeah, for the most part. We look at kids, we go, wow. Unless we change, unless we're, unless we're converted from the old to the new. And what signals that is what characteristic of a little child. That little child trusted Jesus. That little child trusted because he came to Jesus. And no doubt he was in, in, in a relatively intimidating environment with other adults around, notably the disciples. That little child surrendered to Jesus. That little child obeyed Jesus. And that little child humbled himself before Jesus. I submit to you four things that are characteristic if we are to become like little children. You come to Jesus. You surrender. You obey him. And you humble yourself before him. That's what it means. That's what it means to change. That's what it means to be converted we evidence those, in our, those things in our life. We are the little ones. We are the little ones that Jesus refers to. And as such, we are to be treated with great care as precious children of our Heavenly Father. And as such, believers are totally and intimately identified with Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, I think it is, Jesus describes himself as the vine and we are the branches. We have no life apart from him. We're, we're inseparable from him. That's the truth. That's the reality. 
In 1 Corinthians, he describes himself as the head and we are the, we're the body. Again, this picture of we're inseparable. In Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 16, Luke has Jesus saying this, he who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. So when we share the hope and the gospel, the good news of God with people, and they accept it, they're listening to who? They're listening to Jesus. If they reject it and reject us, who are they really rejecting? Jesus. Again, a picture of this intimacy, this inseparability between a true child of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the picture? Jesus' point is that the way a believer, a child of God, is treated, in effect, Jesus is treated the same way. You reject me, you reject him. You reject him. How many remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? It, toward the end of Matthew's, Matthew's gospel, chapter 25. Let me read it to you. And I want you to think the same mindset as we've just been talking about. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Can we hardly wait for that minute? All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Who wants to be a sheep and who wants to be a goat? Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we... See you sick or in prison and go to visit you. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Who does he call us? Brothers. brothers. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about his own family. Now, you and I typically read that passage and we read, well, I, I, you know, I've got to go visit people in prison. I've got to make sure that the, that the hungry get food. I've got, to have, I've got to have all these ministries. I'm going to suggest to you that, that those are simply examples of us caring for one another. Caring for one another. They're just examples of us caring for one another. You can take them literally if you choose, 
but I suggest they're representative of all the ways that we should be caring for each other. Am I making sense? See, Jesus taught this intimate connection between, between himself and those who are his own. If you did it for one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. That's what he's saying. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples. We're to treat each other with kindness. We're to treat each other with care. We're to treat each other with love. And as we do, we show our love for Jesus who lives in us and our faith we're to care for each other like precious little children. How many, how many know about the one another's of the New Testament? How many know what I'm talking about? The one another's. If you read through the New Testament, you, you come upon these phrases, these terms, and I want to just share them with you. I, I thought they would be just perfect for an illustration of how we care for each other. And I went through my concordance and I picked out as many as I could without obviously being exhaustive. So let me read to you uh, some of the one another's that I've discovered. Ignore one another. Despise one another. Curse one another. Hate one another. Bite one another. Gossip about one another. Slander one another. Hurt one another, irritate one another, discourage one another, judge one another, lie to one another, be impatient with one another, tear down one another. Do those describe how Christians should act towards one another? I've been doing this for 36 years. You know how much of that I've seen? Way too much. Way too much Christians not caring for each other, doing just the opposite. Judging one another, tearing down one another, biting one another, gossiping about one another. I suggest that that ought not to be. That ought not to be, according to Jesus. If anyone, he says, anyone does these things, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let me read to you the real one another's. <laughs> Love one another. Love one another. I mean, no, that's costly. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
Forgive one another. Admonish one another with all wisdom. Encourage and build up one another. Encourage one another daily. Love one another deeply. Live in harmony with one another. That's how, that's how God means for the church to care for each other. That's how he means for the church to live. That's what he's, he's describing, the Christian life. What was so attractive about the first century church when you read about it? If you, if you like history and you want to read early church history, you should pick up some, some good early church history books. You read about the first century church, what it was like. In the, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, Luke records for us uh, things that were characteristic of the early church, more particularly in chapter 2. When he describes the church and how caring and loving they were for one another. And he says at the conclusion of that passage, he says, and, 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 and many, many were added to their number daily. Remember, this is in the context of the Roman Empire, which was a cold, brutal empire. There was no compassion, no love. People getting saved out of that environment. Filled with the Holy Ghost. And they're loving one another, loving on one another. And the observers, the observers would look at these Christians and they'd say, behold how they love one another. In every single one of us, there's a hunger, there's an appetite, there's a need to be accepted, to be involved, to be included, to be loved. To be accepted? We'll do everything we can to get accepted, won't we? We'll do everything we can to avoid not being accepted. We'll jump through everybody's hoops just to be accepted. You come into the church, you become a Christian. If you're truly born again, if you're really changed, if you really are abandoned to Jesus, your life changes. Your life changes. This is what we're like. This is how Jesus characterizes us. But now look at verse 6. Again, I call your attention to that word. But. <laughs> but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. If anyone... If anyone mistreats a believer, one of these little ones, we're categorized as one of these little ones. The anyone, I submit to you, of verse 6, can be the worst, most godless, wicked person, or it can be a believer. A person who professes to be a Christian who causes harm to a fellow believer. If anyone, the harm Jesus is speaking of is moral harm, spiritual harm. That's the harm that he's most concerned with. The word he uses is sin. Anyone who entices or leads or influences a little one, a believer in any way to sin. And anyone who is guilty of doing this is guilty of such a serious offense. How serious is this offense? 
It's so serious. It would have been better for that person to have a what? A millstone hung around his or her neck and cast into the depths of the sea. It would have been better that that happened than this person lead someone into sin. Cause them to stumble. This, by the way, is not a figure of speech that Jesus is using. It was a real form of punishment in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion and the casting of people into the sea with a, with a millstone around their neck were the two severest forms of capital punishment. They were reserved for the worst criminals. So when the disciples hear what Jesus is saying, they know exactly what he's referring to. He said, it would have been better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast in the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble or to sin. This is serious stuff. Would you agree? Absolutely serious. Jesus is saying that suffering such a death would be better than causing one of his little ones to stumble or to sin. There is... There is nothing worse. I'm, this is what I'm saying. There's nothing worse than leading another believer into sin. Either wittingly or unwittingly. There's nothing worse, Jesus is saying. Why? Because this millstone issue was reserved for what? The worst criminal. So by definition, if we find ourselves either wittingly or unwittingly leading somebody into sin or being a stumbling block to somebody, we're, we're committing a, the worst crime. What had the disciples just been doing? They've been arguing about what? Who's the lowest? No, 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 you're lowest. You, you take, no, no, you, you, you. Is that what they've been doing? No. They've been arguing amongst themselves about who is what? The greatest. I submit to you, in doing that, in doing that, they were what? They were sinning first because of their own pride, but they were also sinning because they were inciting each other, no doubt, to envy, jealousy, and anger. How should, have, how should they have been treating one another? Just the opposite. Honor each other. Honor one another. Honor one another. Paul says, honor one another above yourself. They were sinning. And Jesus, Jesus is nailing them, isn't he? To harm the spiritual life, to harm the character of a believer, to negatively impact his or her spiritual growth is an abomination in God's sight because it absolutely amounts to attacking his own son, Jesus. The church has always been plagued by false teachers. The New Testament talks about false teachers. The Old Testament talks about false prophets. We have false teachers today. Popular people. Teaching things that lead people astray. Teaching things 
that are false beliefs and false practices. It would be better for them to have had a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the depths of the sea than for them to do this. This is why you and I have to be really discerning. You have to be biblically apprised. You need to know what the Bible says. You need to be reading study for your own. So when you hear stuff, and, and we, we're inundated with radio Christian programs and TV programs and this, that, and the other thing, and there's so much going on, it's hard, unless you really are a student of the word yourself, to, to discern what's really the truth. I've known over the years a lot of people have been led astray by false teachers. It's tragic, it's heartbreaking. People in the church, people in church can live ungodly lives, can't they? Yes, they can. And as they do so, they influence others and lead others into their own sinful ways. Well, I'm not, I'm not harming anybody. <laughs> you don't know that. You can't say that. Other people have visibility of your life. They have visibility of, the, of the, the, the little places that you may hide. They have visibility, and that affects them. And it doesn't affect them positively. Not only are you sinning by living that way, you're sinning also by influencing and affecting the lives of other believers. You're acting as a stumbling block to them. How about husbands and wives? Can husbands and wives be a cause for the other to be sinning? What, what are husbands commanded to do? <laughs> That's right. Don't forget the second part. Love their wives as... Oh, and how did he demonstrate that love? He laid his life down. Any husband who is not loving his wife that way, I submit to you, is influencing his wife to sin. I'll tell you from experience. I watch it. I watch frustrated disgruntled, hurt, angry wives. And I directed it right back to the husband. Husband says, no, 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 I, I've done everything. You haven't done everything you can. Don't lie to me. Can a wife influence her husband to sin? Just as easily. <laughs> the guys are going, finally, finally. <laughs> He's beating on us all the time. <laughs> I've heard I have a reputation. Guys won't come talk to me because I'm going to beat on them. You're right. You're right. But a wife, too, if she lives disrespectfully and unsubmissively to her husband, she influences him also to sin. This is a primary relationship. This is a primary fundamental relationship of family that is absolutely essential that it be in order. There are many, many ways that we can be caused to sin. Satan and the world system 
use even believers to tempt other believers to sin. Do you remember back in the Old Testament? What was the very first example of one person leading another person to sin? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Now, as I read the count, as I read the text, Adam was there the whole time. God gave him the command to not eat of that tree. All he had to do when the serpent was approaching Eve was to say, get out of here, you snake, leave my wife alone. And the serpent would have had to leave. Man had dominion. Does he? She takes the fruit, she gives it to him who was with her. He eats it. Wow. The New Testament says they're both culpable. They're both guilty. New Testament says that Adam disobeyed. Eve was deceived. He disobeyed. But nonetheless, they're both culpable. They led each other into sin. How many remember Aaron, Moses' brother? Moses goes up on the mountain. He's going to receive the word from God, right? He says, Aaron, I'm leaving you in charge. Take care of things. Mind the people. What does Aaron do? No, he didn't make the idol. He threw the stuff in the fire and they came out. Remember, that was his excuse. He led the people astray. Caused them to sin. How many remember this name? King Jeroboam. You read through the Old Testament. You read about all the kings of Israel. And after each one dies, and he did what was wrong in the sight of God, he sinned after Jeroboam. How about that lovely couple, Ananias and Sapphira? Remember them? What happened to them? I'd kill them on the spot. They would have infected the church. My favorite one is 2 Timothy 4.14. 2 Timothy 4.14. Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him. Alexander the coppersmith went behind and tried to undo all that Paul was doing. Leading people astray. The Lord will repay him. The Bible's full of examples of people who directly or indirectly lead others astray. It's something we must contend with on a continual basis. I think it amazing how hard we try to keep our physical children from being exposed to evil and how eager we are to protect them. And yet so often we're not as eager to protect each other, our brothers and sisters. Earlier I read to you from the parable of the goats and the sheep. 
I want to call your attention to the second half of that parable now. Read with me from verse 41. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, go to hell. For I was hungry and you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? It did not help you. He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Is that a frightening passage? Yeah. What's he talking about? Just like the first group, the, the, the sheep, unwittingly, they were caring for each other. When they saw a need, they reached out to meet that need. The second group, just the opposite. They're the goats. They don't meet needs. They don't really care for each other. They don't love for one another. We're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. We must care for each other. It's even possible to cause someone to sin by failing to lead them into righteousness. This, in fact, I think is the most common way in which believers contribute to the sins of others. We don't lead them into righteousness. There are lots of believers who are going spiritually hungry despite all the teaching that's on TV and radio. There are lots of believers who are going spiritually hungry because their brothers and sisters don't share with them, don't encourage them, don't instruct them, don't share spiritual insights and knowledge and experience to help this younger brother or sister to grow. What do we call that? What do we call helping people to grow? Discipleship. Discipleship. I read someplace, it said, go on your way, make disciples. Anybody else read that? So ask yourself, who am I discipling right now? Who am I intentionally discipling? Who am I working with? Well, pastor, you have to understand, I'm a busy person. I've got all this stuff going on in my life. I've got a job. I've got this. i got that. Hey, we all have the same 168 hours in our week, don't we? Is it possible to actually carve out a couple of hours a week to meet with somebody for the intention, the purpose of teaching them and leading them into righteousness? If we would make a disciple, make a disciple. Far too many Christians are guilty of not doing this. And by not doing it, we only lead people into sin, not righteousness. Well, pastor, I, I really don't know. I don't know enough. You know more than the new person. 
I recruited somebody to work in children's church a while back. He'd been a Christian for about a month. He said, I've only been a Christian a month. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know enough. I said, you know more than the two-year-olds. True. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer of the Hebrews tells us this. And let us consider how we may, and the word really is better translated, incite one another on to love and good deeds. How, how can I incite you on to love and good deeds? My purpose is to incite you on to love and good deeds. I need to think about it. I need to consider this. This is part of all we do. Then he goes on in the next verse and he says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Christians need to be together. I don't know about you. We're headed in this country for a horrible, horrible time. You talk about Bill of Rights, we're going to lose it. This country is gone, going, gone. And you know who's going to go first? The Christians. You need, to be, you need to be prepared. You need to be involved with other Christians. You need to be working together, loving one another, caring for one another. Because when it hits the fan, it's going to make our heads swim. God leads us away from sin. He leads us to righteousness. And that's our responsibility to lead each other away from sin into righteousness. Again, if I can use the, the husband, the marriage model, the husband leads the wife in righteousness by his own example. The wife encourages the husband in righteousness by her example. Verse 7. Woe to the world. Woe to the world. I mean, it is, the world is going is, is, to, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Woe to the world. The world is a fallen place, isn't it? It's fallen. It's been subjected to frustration. The world is groaning. Creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. The world has fallen. The world is the world system. The whole world system is under the sway and the influence of none other than Satan himself. First John. John writes in his epistle. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Wait a minute, Pastor. I thought you said God's sovereign. He's in control. He is. But he's allowed Satan free reign for a little while. He's got him on a short chain. But he's there. Woe to the world. The whole world is under God's curse. And that's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world. Don't buy in anymore. Well, I thought this was the way to go. No, not anymore. You're a different person. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, to the world system. The world is constantly setting its sin traps. 
constantly setting its sin traps, and its favorite victims are God's children. And these things are inevitable, Jesus says. Inevitable. These sin traps keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. You just, you just make it through one wave and you come up for air and there's another one on top of you. They keep coming. And they're going to keep coming until Jesus comes back. That's why we need each other to sustain, encourage, support, help, love one another because of all these sin traps. But woe to the man through whom these things come. Things that corrupt, things that mislead those who belong to God. Then Jesus gives us the remedy. He gives us the remedy to deal with sin and being a cause for others to sin. In verses 8 and 9, what's the remedy? If your hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. Your foot causes you to sin, what you do? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That's the remedy. Is it really? No. Does he using severe language here? Why does he use severe language? Yeah, because of the severity of the sin. There is no greater sin. Listen to this. There is no greater sin than being the cause or being the stumbling block over which others can fall. No greater sin. You may not have thought about it that way. But he uses that kind of language to make his point. Now, is Jesus speaking literally, do you think, in using those terms, or is he speaking figuratively? Yeah, he's using figurative language. I mean, cutting off my hand or my foot and gouging out my eye is not going to stop me from sinning. No, it's figurative language. His point is that a person should do whatever is necessary. Whatever is necessary, no matter how extreme or painful or costly it might be, to keep from sinning or causing someone else to sin. Whatever is necessary. Nothing is worth holding on to if in any way it leads to sin. Any habit, any situation, any relationship, anything that causes you to sin or influences another to sin, it should be absolutely and utterly repented of and completely rejected. But pastor, I've tried. I really tried. No, you haven't. You haven't done everything. You haven't done everything. You haven't hated sin so much that you haven't done everything. Just stop. I, I try. I just try. I just can't help myself. Shut up. <laughs> the way of escape, he tells us, the way of escape is to deny. No. 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 
deny myself and draw near to who? Draw near to him. I'll never be able to draw near to him unless I deny myself. Because I got one foot here and one foot here. I'm double-minded. I people all the time come, Pastor, I just, I just don't feel God's presence in my life. I said, because you're sinning. <laughs> if you deny yourself and you humble yourself, you come to Jesus, you abandon yourself to him, I promise you, you'll feel close to God. You'll sense his presence. He says, draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. But he's never going to draw near to us if we're still in our little world. Can you dig it? Whatever is necessary. Whatever is necessary. Whatever is necessary. Mortify the flesh. Leave no room for sin. Whatever is necessary to deny yourself and draw near to God is infinitely better than being thrown into the fire of hell. Great change often requires drastic measures. Would you agree? You say, but pastor, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to hell. Don't tell me you're a Christian and live like you live. And furthermore, don't tell anybody else you're a Christian and live like you live. We have enough bad press as it is. When you start living for God, you start denying self, these things won't even be an issue. Drastic change. You read the parable of the sheep and the goats along with me. People, people, people assume. Again, you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. People say, Lord, Lord. He says, I never knew you. Well, aren't I, aren't I supposed to have assurance of my salvation? Yes, but how do you get that assurance? Is it just a feeling? Or is it a settled confidence because you're living for Christ? You're living for Christ. It's not a game we're playing. I started out earlier and I said to you, describe the Christian life. It's a dynamic, new living with God and with one another. Unless you're fully invested in the life of the church with other people who are fully invested, unless you're making disciples, unless you're walking with God, you have no guarantee. You have no guarantee. If necessary, take drastic action against sin. If sin's a problem in your life, if sin is a problem in your relationships, if your life is not working, if things are disrupted, you can't blame other people. You've got to look at yourself. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the cause. Maybe you, maybe you need to really take drastic action in your life to rid yourself. Have you really done all? Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. I love this. Context is spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare is not just against unclean spirits. It's with sin. 
He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. You got to put on the full armor. If you don't know what that is, go back and read Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when those sin traps come, when temptation comes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. This is serious business. No compromise. We're not playing games. God's not playing games. This is serious business. Would you agree? Listen to Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I beat my body. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I want to make sure that what I'm saying, I'm doing. I'm living it out. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Great verses. Therefore, Paul says, do not let sin, what? Reign. What does sin want to do? It wants to reign. It wants to have its place. It wants to dictate. That's what people, well, I tried. I just can't. No, you're allowing sin to reign. Bible says, don't let it reign. If I am truly born again, I have the spirit of God living in me. I have the power of God resonant. And I did read someplace that I can do all that God wants me to do because he strengthens me to do it. Did I read that right? Don't let it reign any longer in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Who do I want to obey? Jesus, that's right. He goes on and he says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Amen. Deny yourself, draw near to God. Just another way of saying the same thing. Make sense? If you and I as professing Christians deal decisively with our own temptations and our own sins, we will be in the least danger of causing a brother or sister to sin. Starts with us. If you and I are genuinely and humbly concerned that we not sin, then we will also be prepared and motivated to help Others not sin. And then we will be loving God and we will be loving our neighbor. Just what God said. We'll be doing it. I are one. And we will be prepared and fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just humble ourselves before you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who makes it alive to us. And Lord, you know our condition and you know how, how just excuse prone we can be. And how, Lord, we can blame others and blame our circumstances. And, and yet, Lord, you call us to be accountable, to confess our own sins, and to walk humbly before you. And as we do, Lord, we can help each other. 
We pray that those one another's, the second list, would apply to us and describe us. That we would love our brothers and sisters, care for them, bless them. Lord, let us not be like the disciples who are striving for the highest place, but rather for the lowest place that we can serve one another. God, thank you. We love you this morning. Have your way in us, Holy Spirit. Strengthen us to live our life in a manner pleasing to you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.